It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. In the short but uh, hopefully illustrious history of This Might Get Uncomfortable, this is the first guest that we've ever had that I feel like, A, I'm getting into a little bit of uh, fanboy territory from listening to his podcast. And beyond the fanboydom, it's a human being whose creativity in how he created his podcast, his artwork, his whole presentation was one of the podcasts that served as a foundational source of inspiration when Whitney and I were conceptualizing This Might Get Uncomfortable. And as Whitney and I were looking around for the feel, and that's going to be a word, feel and feelings and emotions are going to be one of the bedrocks of this episode with our guest, Noan Wells. His podcast, You, Me, Empathy, was one of the podcasts that we plucked out from the giant podcast universe and said, we love the feel of this. I remember that was the first thing Whitney and I said was, we love how this feels. And it's just so great, known to have you here on today to dig a little bit deeper into so many subjects around mental health and emotional wellness and all kinds of branches and streams. We don't even know where we're going to go yet, but you're the first person we've had on who was really just this, wow, you were at the, it's like you were at the beginning of our journey and you didn't even know it. So I'm fanboying and giving you some love of just saying thank you for creating this beautiful podcast. Thank you for creating the the Feely Human Collective. And I think one of the reasons that we felt so moved by your artwork and your podcast is, and this is our first time connecting, obviously, but it feels like you. When I started listening to your podcast and, and feeling your emotion and feeling your heart, and I said, you know, everything that he's constructed, the, from the logo to the copy to the website, it just feels like you. And I, f- I feel like that's kind of a rare thing. And I guess I'm curious as we kick this off with you, Known. Was that your frame of mind when you were creating the Feely Human Collective and the beautiful branding and the artwork for the podcast? Was that an intention where you're like, I want this to feel like me? Or did it just kind of happen that way? Uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you so much, Jason, for all that flattery. And I I love the fact that you saw my logo and thought this feels right. Because it, it certainly felt right to me when I was you know, conceiving of it. In terms of just like the show and its conceit and why I created it, I never came into the picture really. Like the intention was to create a space of safety and feeling and empathy and vulnerability that I did not have growing up, you know, so to give that to others, you know. And so in the sort of mental health journey leading up until that point, there was a lot of discerning and curiosity and journeying and wayfinding that got me to a point where I I figured out that empathy and vulnerability and creating safe spaces to show up in the world, to meet people where they are, is crucial, is crucial for human growth. And I love that you said it feels like me because I can reflect on that now, like three plus years later in doing Yumi Empathy. It does feel like me. Like it does. It is very much me. I put my heart and soul into it. I don't want to show up in the world not like me. I want to show up just as I am and to be met just as I am. And that's 
that's just the place I am. And so it feels good to hear from you, Jason, that it does feel that it's coming from my heart because it does. It certainly does. This reminds me of something that I've been reflecting on to this point of it does feel good when others perceive us and give us the feedback. Uh, It's like affirming us that what we're intending to do is being received. And then sometimes I wonder, does it matter though, if people see us the way that we're intending, you know, like I, on some level, like almost like a surface level, oh yeah, of course it matters how people perceive us. But then on like a deeper level, I think, well, it doesn't really matter because we don't have control over it. And then do we get caught up in this cycle of wanting people to affirm us? And this is something that I've been reflecting so much on myself. And it feels a bit confusing because as humans, we really thrive in community. We need community. We crave community. And there's so many psychological elements of that. And so much of our society is based on how other people react to us, what other people think of us. And that's where I get kind of like in this muddled thought process of, okay, well, I'm simultaneously being told to just be myself and it doesn't matter what other people think. And also being told, well, you need to do things that matter to others. You can't be selfish. (laughs) It's important for you to align and it's important for people to perceive you a certain way. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that too, both of you. Like, does that confuse you as much as it confuses me or, or does it feel clear? And if you step away and really ask yourself like, oh, in this context, is it important that Jason sees what you were intending for him to see? And did you, I guess, going back to his question, were you trying to get people to see you for who you are or were you just being who you were without caring if they saw who you are at the core? I think it's a bit of both. And that's why probably this is such a, human experience to feel confused by it because it is messy. But it also speaks to the fact that we can hold multiple truths, right? As humans, we can hold the truth of the universality of human need, which is to be seen and heard. Like that is foundational to growth. And at the same time, yes, we have to, you know, there's certain like human needs for achievement and independence and setting out into the world and creating our own space and our own things, right? And I I think the challenge is in how we just manage those things because we can't forget about others, right? We always, no matter what choices we make, we have an impact on others, you know? So, you know, to think of like Jason and his reaction to the Yumi Empathy logo or to what I'm doing, if it's like a positive impact and, and that inspires him to maybe create his own podcast or think about his feelings in a different way or to think about empathy in a different way. That was certainly my intention from the start. But if there are other attributes or other things he's taken away from that experience, that initial sort of reaction to my podcast or my presence, wonderful. And I I think that's like the gift of like the nuance of what it means to be human. There's like we contain so much and we can receive so much from others. And we can, I mean, I always say it on my podcast, we are mirrors for each other, even if we're not even aware of it. Like we can show up as mirrors intentionally, but we're also mirrors unintentionally. I feel like it is an ongoing process of knowing what drives me and also 
really the intent behind why I do what I do. And, and it is complicated because as an example, I was speaking to my therapist, Gary, yesterday during our session, and I was relaying to him that I'm I'm having a challenge with a new thing that I'm doing that we'll probably talk more on the podcast. I recently found myself through Whitney's encouragement and the encouragement of a couple other friends of ours to start being a jingle writer and being a songwriter for hire and, and writing these songs for other people. And it's been beautiful and fun and engaging all of these different attributes as a, a musician and a writer and sort of a gift of the pandemic of I didn't expect I'd be doing this, yet here I am. But one of the aspects that's, I think, related to this is there's a part of me as I'm writing these songs for other people. They're not for me. They're subject matter and topics that other people have contracted me to write about. And on the one hand, there's a part of me as a human being and an artist that I know that I feel the most free when I create without an expectation of how other people are going to receive it. Just trying to keep the channel or the floodgates or the portal, whatever we want to describe it, open so the melody or the chord progression or the lyrics can just come through. I try not to you know, pinch that off in the beginning. But I was relaying to my therapist that the point that I think about and that I start contracting is when I think about releasing these songs and releasing the videos that I've been contracted to do for these songs and that potentially, you know, whoever, thousands, millions of people are going to see this for the brand that I'm doing it for. And then I start to go, ooh, people on social media are going to have opinions aren't they? Because that's what we do. We have opinions as human. And so my mind was going to like, you know, I know that when I release this, there are going to be people that like it and there are going to be people that are indifferent to it and there are going to be people that hate it. And the people that hate it will probably be the most vocal about it because that just seems to be kind of not defeatist, but you know, social media seems to be a place where people want to pour their anger and their fear and their negativity into. So what I'm saying is I, I try to operate from a place of well, I don't care what people think, which is, if I'm honest about it, kind of a emotional defense mechanism. Why? Well, I don't care. I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to do what I, which I, there's a part of me that would genuinely like to be there, but I find when I'm in that stance, it's kind of like this. You can't hurt me. You can't hurt me. You can't hurt me. When deep down, I actually kind of dread releasing these new songs because I know there will be people that'll be like, this is shit. But the reality is I can't allow that to prevent me as an artist from releasing what is in my heart to release in the world. Because it's inevitable that some people will love it, some people will be indifferent, and some people will just you know, drop some really negative comments. But it's something I struggle with. I still struggle with it, especially as an artist making my work public in the world. Yeah, I think we all do struggle with it. And thanks for sharing that. It's tough. I think what you said is spot on, which is, I think the aim is being detached or unattached from outcomes. I think that's the aim. Call it enlightenment, call it whatever you want. I think the aim is in being present with the creation of your thing or whatever you're doing, right? I think it's probably, and I think you're picking up on that, Jason, it's probably a bit of denial of self saying that like, I can be completely removed of the influence of feedback or like what people think. I think that's probably not a realistic space to be necessarily. So like, how can we sort of reasonably, realistically get to a space mentally, emotionally, where we can allow things to be what they are, right? Allow the fact that we can't please everyone, you know, we're not codependents. Uh, we can create and be joyful in our thing. And yes, feedback is great too. And when, like, I can't, like, when I get feedback on the podcast, for example, I'm just like, yes, 
even in our deepest passionate projects, we can feel overwhelmed. We can feel burnout. We can feel stress and anxiety and depression and all these things. And uh, it does help to get feedback that's, you know, champion the thing, you know, excited about the thing that you create. So it's messy, like all of this important work. <laughs> For sure. And I, it is really a fine line because it seems to me that right now in our society, because of the access we have to each other through technology, we can become really overly concerned with what other people think of us. And that can be helpful at times when we get feedback. But for instance, I'm curious, known when, how do you feel when you get positive feedback versus when you get perceived negative critical feedback? Like, how does that impact you with your work? How do you respond to it emotionally? And how do you respond to it, if at all, in your actions? It's changed over time, really. So the space of mental health, which I am in as a podcaster, is fraught with lots of deeply personal experience and trauma and these things that, that bring up a lot of passion and a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows, right? And so I've had experiences with folks who, you know, have attacked me for whatever reason have tried to, you know, just say not nice things, right? And this is the space I'm in. And so on one hand, as a very sensitive, feely boy, yeah, I feel hurt. I'm like, gosh, dang it. Why can't I please everyone? I want to please everyone. But then I have to take a step back and remember that like, okay, known, that's not a reality. That's a thing that doesn't exist. So it's about like, for me, it's about allowing things to be what they are. And also like when I get those negative comments, try to apply empathy, try to kind of, I don't know, even if it's like coming, even if I can't know for sure what this person is going through, I try to like contextualize it in a place of like, maybe they're having a shitty day. Maybe they're struggling and, and maybe this did trigger them in a way that I didn't intend. And I, I feel bad about that, right? Like, so having all of those opportunities for reflection and contextualizing it in a compassionate way does help too. I love that, especially for me as as a self-proclaimed recovering people pleaser. And that's a topic of a interview I'm going to be doing later this week. And I've been thinking a lot about how did I become a people pleaser? How am I recovering from it? How is it still impacting me? How is it no longer impacting me? And that is a very common theme that Jason and I have found in our work is the people pleasing. And I'm fascinated by it. And again, that's why it feels messy. I love that word because I don't know if you ever get to a point or even want to get to a point where you don't care about what people think. In fact, I was watching a episode of this new show called Generation Hustle on HBO, which we did a dedicated episode on. And uh, this one is one of the best that I watch. And it was about a scam artist who's basically came across as if he just did not care how he was impacting people, what they thought of him. He didn't even care what the government thought about it. I mean, and I was fascinated and horrified at the same time because part of me felt envious of his ability to not care, to just go forward and do whatever he wanted because it made sense to him and it worked for his life. And 
none of what he was doing felt directly harmful, although they did have another person in the episode who talked about how sometimes we don't even see the effects of our actions on others so that it can cause us to believe that we're not harming others, but that doesn't mean that we're not. And I thought that was an important part, but his whole attitude and it felt so authentic. I encourage, I already encouraged Jason to watch this episode, known if you're interested to watch it. It's a fascinating series from psychology standpoint, human behavior. And for the listener too, this particular episode, because this man, he didn't come across as a sociopath. He came across like truly confident and calm and just like, this is who he was. He was owning it and he didn't care what other people thought of him. And in fact, generally what people think of him is something positive. He's grown this huge following. He's been very successful. He's incredibly intelligent. But it's also, if you step back and dissect his behavior, people could say ethically, it doesn't make any sense. And I, it just... I've been sitting with that since I watched that episode and reflecting on like, wow, how do we determine when something is good or bad, right or wrong, when there are so many gray areas and messiness in all of this? I, it sounds fascinating. I will certainly check it out. I don't think there is a good or bad or right or wrong, truly. I think like healing, like, you know, quote unquote, the work, it's nonlinear. It is messy. It is gray. It is nuanced. It does take a lot of the sitting and feeling and being curious and asking questions and shedding and unlearning and learning and relearning and checking in on our biases, unconscious biases, conscious biases, like all of it, That like that actively daily, right? And that allows us to be in those spaces of gray. Because if we're fighting them, you know, we're, we're ending up in you know, uh, often narrow frames of thinking that that often bypass parts of the experience of being human that lead to uh, enlightenment, growth, perspective, change, you know, all the stuff that we need. But and there are so many things that could lead to bypassing, right? You know, whether it's spiritual bypassing or, you know, moral bypassing, whatever it may be, there's a lot of it that exists. And I am on the side of if there is a side at all of allowing for things to be what they are, all of it, and really sitting with that reality. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. But I think that is at least the aim that I am going toward. I'm glad you spoke to that known because it reminds me of something I've been increasingly experiencing and that our friend Jeff Krasno, who was a previous guest who runs this great website called Commune, uh, he posted something yesterday about the most dangerous position you can take right now is being in the center. And he had a really wonderful post explaining his viewpoint on this, You know, whether that's being in the gray or, or being in the center of how right now the polarity is so strong uh, politically, socioeconomically, in terms of the vaccine conversation, there's a lot of topics that are deeply emotionally charged for a lot of people. And I find myself on a very regular basis being contacted or being invited to have conversation with people who have very, very deftly picked a side. Like they're firmly entrenched in their viewpoint, their belief, what is right, what is wrong. And I've had to start enacting boundaries with people in my life of saying, I really appreciate you want to invite me to have this conversation with you and, and I feel how passionate you are about it. Right now, I'm in a place with my mental health where 
am not prepared to have that conversation. I'm really doing my best to get clear about how I feel about said topic. And it's more challenging for me to get clear if I'm receiving feedback from people with all these viewpoints. So in different ways, I've had to paraphrase that kind of communication and send it to people saying, because it's not only the volume of people who want to have a conversation about you know politics, socioeconomics, vaccines, et cetera, but the feeling I'm getting is that people really want me to agree with them. And I don't need to agree and I don't feel like I want to pick a side right now, so to speak. And some people have sort of remarked of like, well, you know, you need to be on the quote right side of history and you need to be aligned with, you know, the, the righteous people and fight against evil. But this is all a very aqueous kind of amorphous thing because there's a lot of people who feel like they are on the right side of history and doing, you know, whatever it is, God's work or the good work or fighting against the evil ones. But that's such a nuanced perspective because that really comes down to individual perception. I mean, the idea of good, evil, right, wrong, we're the good guys, you're the bad guys. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm finding that it's radically uncomfortable, as you said, known to be in the center or live in the gray when a lot of people really, really, really want you to pick a side and be with them. I'm curious what Jeff meant with his post. Was he saying you quote, shouldn't be in the center when he said it's dangerous to be in the center? Or is he saying like, it's dangerous, but that's not a bad thing? Correct. Yeah. The second of to live in a place where you are not putting your proverbial stake in the ground of I'm with this political party or th this you know particular affiliation or I'm pro-vax, anti-vax. He, he was basically saying like to not pick a side is the most controversial and dangerous thing one could do right now because people it makes people radically uncomfortable. I've had people respond to me like, well, what do you mean you don't know how you feel? I said, I don't know how I feel about it. What do you mean you don't know? I said, I don't know how I feel. Well, what are you going to do about it? I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and I found that the phrase genuinely, I'm feeling into it or I don't know, certain people really, they're radically uncomfortable receiving that kind of authentic perspective. I hear what you're saying and I, I'm following along. I think it's very important for us humans to say, I don't know as often as we can. Uh, but then what, right? What is our next action to learn, right? To maybe enlighten ourselves, to educate ourselves. I think what that makes me think of is, yes, I agree that there is really no right or wrong or bad or good. I do think that there are certain things that, you know, me personally, I do want to take a stand on, right? I, I do want to not agree to disagree, right? Like that is a recipe for disaster, so I think passionate, active work is important. And at the same time, what you're speaking to with the people showing up with their armor, their ammunition, right? That is because they're buying into the framework, the binary framework of this versus that. And I think we need to dismantle that whole system of this versus that. You know, that's hard. Like that takes individual work. It's maybe more comfortable it's maybe easier it's maybe feels safer to pick a side know what that means have the information i need have the few bits of information i need that's my identity right that's my place and i feel like i don't want to diminish that i feel like it's important to feel community it's important to have a sense of identity and a sense of purpose and at the same time it's important to challenge it every day and there's a, not a lot of sort of introspective challenging of our own perspectives that's happening. It's why we get into these places of this versus that. It's why Trump was elected, for goodness sake. I think one of the, the biggest opportunities 
is when we are confronted with someone who is, you know, either vehemently trying to defend their viewpoint or perhaps, you know, even getting into a mode of spewing vitriol or attacking us. And I'm curious on that subject, known what the difference is in your cosmology between empathy and compassion, because I feel like those two words are often used interchangeably. And I'm curious what the difference is for you between empathy and compassion and how we employ those in our human relations. It's a great question. I I think of this often. Compassion to me is important. Uh, it feels more passive, though. Empathy is more active. Empathy to me is active daily practice. You know, we often think of empathy as putting ourselves in the shoes of another. And it's very much that, right? It's very much that. And it's also so much more. You know, you, Jason, could have an experience, for instance, that was maybe traumatizing. And I, as known, may have not had that same exact experience. I can still show up with empathy because I am a human who's experienced trauma. I'm a human who's experienced suffering in some way, right? I can go there, but it takes practice. It takes active listening. It takes being present. It takes a lot of the work of really communicating and listening, a lot of listening and looking and learning. And so that's how I would distinguish the two as passive versus an active sort of action. One of the things I think that I've seen an increasing amount of in terms of workshops and books and things that people post is how to navigate the world as an empathic being. And people talking about the dangers, I suppose, of uh, when you... (laughs) this is not my language, but when you feel too much. And it's interesting because I didn't have even a framework or language for being an empath most of my life. But if I reflect back, even going back to my childhood as a young boy, my mom had to, (laughs) my mother had to ban me from going to the pet store because I would go to the pet store with my mom and I would cry because I wanted to rescue every single cat dog, bird, turtle, gerbil. I was like, why can't we take... As a four-year-old, five-year-old, I didn't understand why we couldn't. I'm like, well, our house is big. We got this great house. And house is no, but we have this backyard. We'll put them in the backyard. We'll put them... I had all of these solutions. And my mom, God bless her. I love my mom. She was just like, babe, we can't do this. I didn't understand. And similarly, when we would say, you know, go to downtown Detroit and I would see homeless people, it would be like, well, can we just take them home for dinner? We, we need to feed them. We need to do these things. And I've always been driven, I think, at the core of my being to just acknowledge and see maybe what I perceive as suffering or limitation or a way that I could help. And I also acknowledge that there are some days where I suppose I overconsume news, perhaps, and I feel so emotionally weighed down by the enormity of human suffering. And this is sort of a long way to get to a question. You know, I could look at sort of the Buddhist approach of pedantically, I'm, you know, misquoting the Buddha, but, you know, one of the foundations of our existence is suffering. Like we can't escape it. So to me, it's not necessarily about my empathy or how I implement that into action, wanting to remove the suffering of the entire, you know, sentient beings on the planet. I know that's not possible, but. I guess my whole thing is I'm still learning how to keep my heart open and how to still keep feeling and help and be action-oriented, as you're saying, but realizing that some days I feel fucking overwhelmed by the enormity of it. So I guess my question is known as a fellow sensitive human with this beautiful heart and this deep capacity to relate and support, how do you navigate this You know, as an empathic being, as a deeply feeling human, and not just feel crushed under the weight of it all? 
Yeah, it's tough. And I love the image of little Jason at the pet store wanting to take all the animals home. I so relate to that. I love that. I, you know, it's hard. It's very hard. And, you know, I think like I, for me, learned the hard way. I, so, you know, Whitney had mentioned being a recovering people pleaser. I feel like I'm very much the same way. And I'm that way because there was a lot of that in my household growing up. I felt like I did have to sort of be the mediator, be the sort of quiet observer to not sort of rock the boat too much. And a lot of that framework as children, especially for sensitive children, uh, lends to a lot of building up of armor. And because it does feel too overwhelming, it does feel scary, it does feel, you know, whatever it may be. I think we come into the world with that huge, beautiful capacity for empathy that you're talking about. And then it's maybe beaten out of us. Then through our familial systems, it is perverted or it is damaged. And then we have to do a lot of struggle and pain to eventually get to a point where I know for me, I built up all this armor, which helped me survive, right? I honor that. But it also, you know, nearly killed me. It also nearly, it it damaged me greatly. And so I've had to shed that armor since. And that whole shedding process was and has been uh, very painful. But I'm at a place now where I can put on new armor, armor that serves me, armor that like actually fits, for goodness sake, you know? And so when I hear you say, yeah, I just want to, I want to help. I have that capacity, have that drive. And at the same time, I feel so overwhelmed by the weight of the world. I feel all of that. And I think it comes down to day-to-day decisions, for me at least, in regards to what can I do? How can I show up? And how can I show up for myself first? Like, How can I still honor my own boundaries, my own energy, my own time and my space? It's why I always talk about how we have to, like anything, like love, like empathy, we have to do it first inward. We have to do it for ourselves first in order to properly, authentically do it for others. So the same thing applies here is we have to figure out who we are in the world. We have to figure out like what fills our hearts and what serves us and how can we like, like I always say, change one heart at a time because we're not going to do it in big swaths of people necessarily. We want to. That's like our passionate, like, and that's maybe what we should strive toward. But baby steps too is important. So it's really just a balance and a flow and finding what serves you day to day and making sure to rest along the way because I feel you, man. It's, it is exhausting when you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders and they're total strangers. You're like, how can I help? How can I do this? It gets overwhelming, but we don't want to get to a place where we're arrested with that overwhelm. We want to still take action. We want to make an impact, right? So how do we not be arrested by it and just shut down? How do we navigate that? I think one of the coping mechanisms for all of this is becoming numb. And we go in this direction of either pretending or believing that we don't care. And that kind of ties back into when Jason was saying, I don't know. It's also like that phrase, oh, I don't care. It's fascinating to notice when I say that. And it's fascinating to notice it when others say it. And especially in kids, I've, I've started to become really passionate about children not being a mom 
but having so many friends that have young kids and then our interest in mental health, I'm sure you've seen the same thing now and you read these reports about how bad mental health is for teenagers and even younger. It's heartbreaking. And the more I research it and study it, I just see how at such a young age, kids will numb themselves to protect themselves because they're overwhelmed. They're confused. They're trying to survive and get by. They're people pleasers, perhaps. And all of these behaviors we adapt just to get by as children. And if we're not aware, that carries on with us in adulthood and maybe throughout our entire lives. And I mean, that's one of our biggest inspirations with this show and that terminology, this might get uncomfortable, is encouraging people to get uncomfortable because so many of us numb ourselves so much that we never want to get uncomfortable or we we don't think that we're ever uncomfortable because we keep saying like, oh, I don't care. I don't know. Doesn't matter. We say yes to things we don't really want to. We don't know how to set boundaries. These are all such common themes. We avoid people. I'm reflecting often on like these beliefs that we have around extroversion and introversion and looking at myself like, am I really introverted or is that just a coping mechanism? Like, am I just uncomfortable in social situations? Jason's talked about how his extroversion might be the root of him just feeling like he needs to be the loudest voice in the room or he needs to have the attention. He needs to perform for people. That's part of his coping mechanism and his learned behavior. And another thing that you touched upon that I thought was a really important point is I think in in society and in the mainstream, we get so much messaging around changing and getting better, but also simultaneously like it's shameful to change like as a basic human, like who you are. If you gain weight, for example, which is a topic we touch upon often on the show, it's shameful to gain weight. Like, how dare you change your body? How dare your body change? How dare you get older and show signs of age? Like, oh my gosh, you got to dye your hair. You have to prevent wrinkles. You need to get Botox. You need to, you know, all of these things that we do to try to like hide the fact that we're changing. And then also simultaneously, we're encouraged to change and adapt and personal development. Like you, you just got to go after more and more and more as if there's really a place of satisfaction that we're going to get to. And it's again, like this weird, you know, mentality that conflicts with each other. It's like, keep changing so you can get to a point where you no longer have to change. But then if you don't change, then that's not good. Or if you do change, that's not good. And it's like, no wonder people are so confused. And we have so much like resistance to being human and being human is your body is changing constantly. And we have so much shame around our bodies, which breaks my heart. And then then of course, you're going to want to go numb. Of course, you might start to isolate or tell people you don't care. Like it's just like this overwhelm that we experience from all these mixed messaging. It's I mean, no wonder people are like constantly unsatisfied because they are so confused about what satisfaction even means and who they're supposed to be in this world. And I yeah, I don't have any of the answers, but it's something I reflect on daily. And I imagine you do too. Yeah, I think about it. And those are wonderful thoughts. And it, what it makes me think about is the identities we hold on to. I think it's important to change. Change is inevitable in growth, right? To go back to what Jason said about, you know, paraphrasing the Buddha, there was also sort of some nuance to that quote is pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. 
And the suffering comes in when we're not looking and being curious and being present, right? The pain is going to happen, and that's the uncomfortable spaces that you're talking about, right? But we hold on to our identities. Like, we, I am a writer. I am an empath. I am a silly person. I am a runner. Like, these are things that bring us value, right? We tell them to ourselves. We tell them to others, right? They're part of our identity, and they change over time. And when people see you changing, it's hard because change is hard for people. And when you're dealing with maybe familial relationships or partnerships where one or both partners are maybe narcissistic leaning, that's an attack on them, right? That's And they put up their defenses. But I think like it's the identity piece is hard because it does bring us value. And at the same time, we do have to recognize that we have to change. We have to constantly change. And it's a good thing to change. But it's scary because it's, you know, I've always been a writer, you know, and, and what does that mean, right? If I'm not again, you know, that's a scary place to be. And it's not only that it's important to change, to your point, when you said change is inevitable, we don't have control over change, but we resist it so much. It's like, oh, I don't want to change. Like, I don't want my weight to change. I don't want to gain weight. I don't want to lose weight. I don't want my appearance to change. Like, but we can't, like, there's only so much prevention we can do. I mean, we, we as a society are obsessed with preventing change. Well, I think that's because of all the external forces. It's because we're too obsessed with what we talked about at the beginning, which is like, what are we receiving externally? What What is the superficial feedback we're receiving through media, capitalism, all of it? Like it's all informing. And if we're taking it in and if we're not asking ourselves, is this true? Like we should be asking ourselves that every day. Is this true? Most of the time it's not, but like we had like that is a skill in and of itself to like get to a place where we can be curious about a thing, look at it honestly and ask it, is this true? Yeah, I think this leads me to the fact that I have been meditating on, and I mean that literally and sort of figuratively when I use the word meditating on, uh, death a lot more recently and not necessarily in a, I suppose, morose or morbid way. But just in a, how do I even phrase this? We're talking about change. And obviously, I think on one level, we know that our bodies will cease to be and we will become, I mean, I would like to be actually be buried in one of those pot, those cool pods they have now and turned into a tree. Like, I think those are really rad. Like in my will, I want to say, Jason requests to become a tree. Please place his remains in this pod and bury him. I know that's, that's inevitable. And so we're walking around in this human experience with and it may not be conscious like it's been kind of really front of mind for me but we know that we will our bodies at least depending on one's belief systems will cease to be the experience of jason the experience of whitney the experience of known will end on this physical plane so we're walking around having this experience of navigating our lives but how often do we really think about death and not in a sense of like well, the clock's ticking. You better hustle and make your dreams come true. I don't mean in that, you know, very aggressive sort of, you know, it's all, you know, YOLO. You got it. You, you, the clock's running out. Do what you need to do. I find that very stress inducing and very anxiety producing. So when I'm thinking about change and death, it's more like, oh, it's, it's gray there and the hairline's receding and we're in our mid 40s now and my mom's getting older and I'm starting to consider how I want to be there for her as she ages. 
I'm starting to notice that there are certain injuries that are taking longer to recover. It's it's just a meditation on mortality. And yet, to what we're discussing, there's so much in our capitalist system that is resisting the inevitability of death. It's look as youthful for as long as possible and get rid of those wrinkles and get rid of those gray hairs and make sure you have six-pack abs and make sure you're make sure you're sexually desirable and hitting the metrics of value in society as long as possible. This is how you'll be valued by society. Just look this way, have this certain weight, have your hair. I mean, it's almost as if, you know, it, entire industries would literally collapse overnight if humanity were be able to snap their fingers and go, you know what? I actually love and approve of myself exactly the way I am. I accept my mortality. I accept the fact that this whole vessel is going to change and all that external accoutrement. Just, you know what? Fuck all that. All of this is to say, you know, the losses that we've been experiencing collectively, not just from COVID, but certainly in other ways, losses of income, losses of our career, loss of identity known, a lot of these titles we may, there's a lot of shedding and a lot of literal death and sort of figurative identity death taking place right now. And I'm curious for both of you, you know, what your feelings are on your mortality, if you both have been meditating on this subject at all, and what kind of thoughts and feelings those engender, because it's been really, really present for me. I don't often think about death per se. Jason, when I hear you say that, you know, when we have these systems that, yeah, like want us to be a certain way, be a certain weight, you know, achieve whatever, that's all denial of self, right? That's all denying what we are as humans, which is we get old, we get you know, gray hair, we age, right? And it's, I mean, I, I think that's what makes it beautiful is that it ends. Like that is because it ends, that's what gives it meaning. And holding on to the meaning is being present for me. So when I think about death, which is not often, I think about that. I think about the fact that I die is what gives it meaning. And I'm going to stay here and be present in the moment. And also YOLO, motherfuckers, and just crush some monster energy drink on my face and just go for it. No, I'm just kidding about that last part. <laughs> that was so good. And I thought you were serious for a moment. I was like, is no, because no judgment, but that's pretty amazing that he can, again, occupy both spaces at once. <laughs> that's right. We contain multitudes. <laughs> um, I asked you prior to recording if there was any subject matter you didn't want to discuss. And uh, thank you for communicating that you were open to anything. Uh, one of the things that really moved me was your the way that you responded to people's comments and feedback when you lost your dog recently. And that's such a tender, cracked open, for me at least, when I've lost companions, you know, one of the most vulnerable and open spaces I can even imagine in my entire life. It's just raw and cracked open and your heart just it's such a space like nothing else, I think. And I was looking at some of your social posts and and watching how you were responding with such grace and and sweetness and sensitivity and in even one it might have been like a bot or someone who wasn't paying attention to the context of your post said like hey click on this link to go get our newest dog treats and i had this moment of like feeling so much empathy for you in your loss and thinking oh my god i don't know how i would not be able to respond with anger and vitriol and your response was so kind and so neutral. And you said something like, and forgive me for paraphrasing, but like, is this really what you want to post right now? And that that hit me in a way of just like, you're in this raw space of mourning, and yet you had the presence and the kindness to not lash out at this person. And for me, known that that was just, I wanted to just acknowledge that in you because it, it moved me in, in a really profound way. Mm. It really did. 
Thank you, Jason. Yeah. I, I so appreciate that. And I, yeah, it's, it goes back. I mean, that, that comment was <laughs> shocking, right? But it goes back to what I was talking about before, which is like, what context am I missing, right? This could be just a bot, you know, for all I know, right? So why should I sort of ruminate on it for as long as I need to just write a question back, right? You know, it is, I wanted to share about losing Scooby, who was truly my best friend in the world, because I know that people have gone through it themselves. 10 years ago, I could not have done that. And the reason for that is I've done a a tremendous amount of work and I can hold the fact that this loss fucking sucks and I'm going to miss him every day and I have a big Scooby-sized hole in my heart. And at the same time, I can reflect on the immense joy that he gave the world and me and my partner. And I can hold both of those things to be true. I can be fucking sad, which I am, and I could be joyful in reflection of his beauty, right? And that, I think that's kind of where I'm at in the world is like continuing to do and sort of hone my craft of holding it all, right? And in that space, I can be a reflection for others. I can offer up empathy. I can, you know, show my whole heart because I feel confident in that ability because I've been doing it in a way that's protective, that comes with boundaries, that comes with you know, I'm not doing it for like, give me sympathy. I'm doing it for connection, right? Like, why am I doing it? It goes back to Brene Brown always says, who has earned the right to hear your story? Uh, Not everyone has. There's work in discerning who that is. And certainly the audience of Yumi Empathy and the Feely Humans out there have earned that right. And so, yeah, I wanted to share because Scooby has had a profound impact on my life and even my own philosophy as a human. That's beautiful. And it it's also touches upon these questions we can ask ourselves about what do we post and when and for what reason and how do we respond to people? Because, yeah, it's, it's shocking. Like my reaction to that comment was a shock, but you're absolutely right. There's a context there in most responses we get from people that we don't fully understand. And I'm very triggered, similar to Jason. I don't know if I I would feel, maybe I would feel anger. It reminds me actually of uh, a message that we received on our Wellevator Instagram account yesterday that I had been reflecting on since this woman private messaged us and said, you know, with a video. And she said, you know, I'm a big fan of your show. Have you guys considered doing video? Like I saw you've done a little bit of video and I think it'd be great for you guys to, you know, be posting things on YouTube and all this. And I responded back. I said, you know, we do have a YouTube channel. And I I had this moment of like, is she really a fan or did she just say that to fake it so that because she was trying to sell us. That's the context is she offers services to help podcasters with video. And I took the moment to recognize like, oh, maybe we actually haven't been that clear that we have a YouTube channel, you know, and the truth is it's a newer thing for us and we're not like bold about it, but we do mention it often enough. And I thought, well, if she's really a fan of our show, wouldn't she know it? Because we bring it up in many of our episodes and our newsletters and, you know, but then I took it as an opportunity to evaluate why, you know, why she might not realize it. Maybe we just weren't being clear. And that's something that I learn over and over again is that people just like they don't 
necessarily process everything until they've seen it a ton or it's in their face. You know, so it could be very easy. I could see myself actually seeing a photo of a dog and commenting, oh my gosh, your dog is so cute without realizing that the, the caption was indicating that the dog had passed away. So I actually have probably done that before, you know, so I could see myself in those positions of making a mistake. And in that moment with this direct message that I responded to, I, I just like felt a little irritated. And I have been reflecting a lot on like, why is this irritating me? Well, I think it's because it felt I interpreted, is she trying to trick me into thinking she's a fan? And that feels out of ethics for me because I don't want fake conversations. I want connection. I want realness. I want people to be transparent about who they are and why they're asking. And I felt like this righteousness of like, how dare she? How many other podcasters is she reaching out to to try to sell her services and come across as a big fan? You know, That's like, a, to, in my opinion, a sleazy marketing tactic. And I've experienced that over the years. I mean, the amount of template emails I've received from people that you can tell they literally copied and pasted. Sometimes the font is, a, is the wrong size or the wrong color. Like They make it so clear that this is a template that they pasted your name into. And that stuff like really bothers me and it triggers me because it just doesn't feel ethical. But I've realized over time that like my version of ethics and the way that I proceed in life is very different for others. And they have their own reasons and their own context for why they're behaving that way and operating that way. And I've done it too. And it's it's actually very humbling sometimes, you know? It doesn't mean you have to have patience for it though. So for to go use your example, right? You could have just deleted that, right? Because I, I get those all the time, either via Instagram or through email. It's very clear when it's insincere, right? And a lot of times I just delete them. And that that's sort of me setting a boundary. And I think that's me also recognizing what can I control? Yes, like I agree and I empathize, Whitney, with the feeling of like, God, they're just ruining the system. They're making it harder for us who want to do these things that are pure and real and open hearted. And yet, what can I do about it? I can control what I input, right? And how I set my boundaries. And in that way, like the example of the comment on Scooby's post, right? I very well could have just deleted that comment. Maybe I wanted everyone to see that, you know, to call him out or her out or them out. Like maybe, maybe that was part of it. You know, I haven't really reflected on that until this very moment. So blocking and deleting are sort of good, <laughs> good boundary tools, I think, when it comes to social media, especially. Yeah. And I love that point too, because that brings up for me a question of certainly the reason I responded to this woman is I wanted to let her know, like, I wanted to call her out and I wasn't doing it publicly, but I wanted to be like, hey, if you, I didn't say this, but what I was trying to kindly and professionally say is, hey, if you were really a fan, you'd know that we, not only do we have a YouTube channel, but Jason and I have been doing YouTube for 10 plus years. Like we don't, you know, we already have a whole system. And I, I felt like she was just treating me as if I was some inexperienced beginner podcaster who didn't know, you know, and, and then I look at that trigger and I think, wow, like I get triggered when people don't take me seriously when people don't understand me. I get triggered when I feel like I'm not being respected. That That's like a huge thing for me is like... That's our ego. I, 
Exactly. Exactly. I think those are such amazing opportunities when I'm I'm putting someone in their place. Or to your point too, it's like you want to publicly call people out. Going back to Brene Brown, it's like I always notice I hate it when people shame me, but sometimes I shame people too. And I can step back and recognize, ooh, you know, maybe calling someone else publicly, like, is that shaming them? Like, is am I okay? Does that is that in alignment with my ethics? Jason and I talk a lot about like cancel culture and accountability culture, and that's huge right now. Like, it's a lot about calling people out, and I see the benefits of that, and I also see the harm because I'm really an advocate for reducing shame. But I have to examine my own rule and how I perpetuate shame too. I want to bring up something when we were kind of talking about, well, there's a couple of layers here. So I'm wondering where I want to take this next. I want to talk about our deep interpersonal relationships, be that familial or the family we choose, whether that's blood family or or family of choice. I think one of the, the interesting parts of not only the last you know year, year and a half with the backdrop of this pandemic, but certainly I think when we identify that maybe we have, for lack of a better word, toxic dynamics with people that are very close to us and how difficult it can be to either set really firm, clear, substantive boundaries with those people, or in some cases, choose not to have people in our lives. We brought up our dear friend Adam earlier known that we want to connect you with at some point. And one of the things that Adam talks about a lot publicly on his podcast and also in our personal conversations is his decision to completely distance himself from all communication and interaction with certain family members and how difficult that's been for him. And so, you know, I'm curious, known, you know, what your approach is, you know, it's it's one thing, I suppose, to set boundaries with anonymous people online we don't know. But the challenge of setting those kind of boundaries or even just severing a relationship with people that are very close to us feels substantively different than blocking someone on social media. Have you experienced that in your life and to what degree? And how have you navigated that in terms of communication and your emotional life? It's tough. It's really tough. I've certainly experienced a lot of it. I had a father who was pretty rageful and violent and just not nice, uh, not a good dad. And uh, I think he, it seemed to, he isolated uh, his anger toward me a lot. At least that's how it felt, certainly. And by the time I was in my 20s, late 20s, so I guess about 12, 13 years ago, I sort of severed that tie completely. I basically just told him, like, you're not in my life. And he has since, you know, tried to get in touch with me and via email and things like that. And I've seen him at very infrequently, maybe a once every few years at a family event kind of thing. And it's it's always very awkward. It's always sort of like a quick handshake and a then I avoid and you know am anxious the entire time. <laughs> That's kind of been hard and weird. I, I think the last couple of years I have tried to bring more compassion in my mind to that relationship and what that looks like. And by that, I mean thinking of him in the context of his own upbringing, of his own, presumably from what I've heard, you know, kind of loveless childhood. And, you know, so I can reflect on that and understand that like, okay, yeah, he had a tough go at it. This sort of impacted his own parenting, not to discount or not to excuse, certainly, but to provide context and maybe look at things more empathetically. 
but that being said, still don't have a relationship. The one that's been tough is just my family in general. My mother in particular, I'm sort of dealing with what that looks like right now, honestly. She has been really critical about the work I do. She does not like it. She thinks it's negative. And she thinks that talking about mental health and talking about my traumas and whatever, that I should just get over it and move on. And so we've had some interactions that have been very shocking, (laughs) very diminishing. Uh, Two years ago, in fact, about two years ago in April, we had a moment that I documented on my podcast. You should listen to everyone. But essentially, there was about 90 minutes of her and her husband attacking me, trying to dismantle my whole worldview. And uh, for reasons I don't know to this day, you know, probably a lot of insecurity and guilt and shame that they're feeling, confusion that I don't believe in their God, you know, confusion around whatever. But it ended with that whole conversation after an immense series of invalidation. It ended with her. No, I'll, I'll back up. It ended with me talking about how when I grew up, I self-harmed. I cut myself. And then she said, prove it. Then I pulled up my sleeve and showed her said scars. And then the most perfect statement was said, which was, I don't see them, which is, you know, obviously holds a lot of like metaphorical weight and symbolic weight. And, uh, you know, that was a really tough moment. And we had done a therapy session together after that which was not very successful. And then since then, she's sort of said some sort of awful things. She's still clearly holding a lot of maybe guilt, maybe anger toward me. And so I don't really know what that boundary looks like. I'm still navigating it, honestly. I A piece of me wants to just cut her out. Another piece of me knows that that would possibly bring more disruption. And maybe I need to find a place in my own emotional boundary to say, Happy Mother's Day. And, you know, just kind of keep it surface and to keep it and to know myself that there is a clear boundary, but not to like have to like, hey, mother, here is a boundary, you know, like not have to like tell her because I don't think she could take it or understand it. So it's hard because you're operating in this case with two different languages, two different systems, right? Very, very opposing systems in a lot of ways. So it's been difficult. It's hard. But I think the key is always checking in, always kind of checking in, (laughs) going to therapy, figuring out what feels right and what feels honoring and what feels safe. Is there a part of your internal narrative with all this known that reflecting on conversations I've had with other friends who who have experienced similar contexts with their parents as they got older, have you felt or do you rub up against sort of, I don't know if it's a societal norm, but it's just something I've heard from other people where it's like there's there's a predication we ought to be close to our parents or family. It's almost like if you're not close to your parents or your family, quote, something's wrong with you. And that's a clunky way to try and say it, but it seems to be a thing that other friends that I know struggle with of this impetus that, well, I, I've, I've got to have some semblance of connection when perhaps it's better for your mental health and your emotional wellness not to have that connection or manage the connection in such a way, whereas you said it's more surface level. Is that something you've rubbed up against or faced of like, oh, but I'm supposed to be close to them? I've certainly heard it a lot. And it, it has such cultural import because, you know, in certain 
maybe like Hispanic cultures, right? There is an immense emphasis on family, right? And I think that's a value. That's wonderful. I think where it can go wrong is when family is looked at as an intrinsic value. I don't think it is, right? So I don't believe that like family is an intrinsic value. What does that mean? That means that they have to earn my respect. They have to earn my love. Love uh, should not be conditional. I'm feeling like it is with certain family members. That shouldn't be the case. There's a lot in our society that says we should, you know, family's family, you know, I think that's damaging and that's denying of self. And that's in a lot of cases, just lifting up or, or supporting a lot of violence and a lot of isolation and a lot of just like, oh, you put that under the rug because they're family, right? And that, that's no way to live. I think that's deeply damaging. You and I have a similar experience with our with our fathers in terms of not having our fathers in our lives, but being confronted by a lot of rage and anger and you know physical, emotional violence. I had a very similar experience with my father growing up. And I think as a component of not having a guiding masculine figure growing up, you know, I, I think in some ways my grandfather tried to fill that, or you know, some guys that my mom dated tried to fill that, but I personally didn't have as a young man a consistent loving, guiding, masculine presence. And I remember as I became, you know, an adolescent and a teenager, not only being aware of, but really owning my level of emotional sensitivity and feeling so lost and scared and confused because the archetype that my classmates or my peers presented was very much a repetition or a recycling of, for lack of a better word, sort of the old masculine paradigm of dominate, control, oppress, you know, the loudest, strongest, most aggressive guy in the room gets the rewards. And I remember trying that suit on for a little while, you know, like, oh, okay, I'm, oh, well, this is how they get what the, okay, this, oh, okay. So as, oh, so as a man, this is, okay, cool. This is how I get all the things. I remember trying on that suit of being kind of like dickish and unfeeling and just, you know, fuck everyone, I'm going to get what I want type of mentality. And I remember feeling so that was not who I was at the core of my being. I was so aware of, you know, trying on this persona that wasn't me. And that left me feeling even more confused and discouraged because I'm like, but, but okay, they're telling me not to cry because if I cry, I'm weak or I'm a pussy or whatever. And don't show emotion, don't show vulnerability because that'll get you killed. And all of these really toxic, debilitating messages that for many, many years, I was like, does this mean I'm gay? Does this mean I'm, I have an alternative sexuality I don't know about? I don't feel like a man by their standards. I guess all this is to say, known that since we have this similar background of a shared experience with our fathers not being in our lives, how have you navigated and how do you continue to navigate being a deeply sensitive, feeling man when we have been bombarded our entire lives that that is what we ought not be? Yeah, thank you for that empathy Jason and I I will just you know you know this but maybe for the listeners like the reality is that when we are teenagers we are putting on a lot of armor we are putting on a lot of different suits as you call them different identities we're trying we're just like doing our fucking best to try to survive and to to move through all the castes and systems within high school and junior high and et cetera. And that's scary. So there's a great deal of like trying on different things. And so it's okay to to do that. So to answer your question, I how do I navigate? I, you know, I like you, I, I didn't have a great sort of father figure. And it's why I've always been sort of 
I think to this day a bit more critical or I make men go through a lot more loops and steps to like to win my sort of good graces or whatever, you know, and that that's on me. I don't think that's probably fair. However, yeah, I think that I see sensitivity and feeling my feelings as superpowers. I see them as immense tools for connection and healing and self-actualization and growth and all the stuff that I want to do in the world. And to deny myself of those things would be to just cut off a big part of my heart. I don't want to do that. And I, I feel for the men out there or those who are who identify as men and who feel like they need to be more masculine or more strong or whatever, you don't. Like the system maybe around you is reflecting that. Maybe you're on you need to dismantle that system. Maybe you need to find safe people like Jason and Whitney, you know, pockets of the universe. There are many that will see you as you are and allow you to tap into your sensitivities because it is truly a superpower. It's just about perspective and finding your people. I love that you said that, Known in in that, you know, if a listener out there feels like they're alone and nobody understands or empathizes with them. I've certainly felt that way a lot in my life of kind of like the outsider or the, I don't know, the black sheep or, or the weirdo. And it's reassuring just to reflect what you said that there are people out there who will love you and accept you and listen and receive your journey, your story, your perspectives, even if you feel like the weirdest person in your town, like what am I? I'm an alien. I don't even belong. And I've had that. I've had those thoughts of like, I'm not I'm not from here. And I still, that's a whole nother side conversation about. <laughs> All of us actually... have had that. All sensitive, feely, uh, you know, outsider people have felt that feeling before. It's so human. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's just beautiful to have you, you know, reflect that beam of hope, which is very real. You know, as an offshoot of this exploration of our sensitivity and authenticity as men in this world, in relationship, I have struggled at times with certain partners or people I've dated trying to get me to adhere to their version of what they find to be masculine. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because what I've observed in some spaces is sort of this response or backlash to, well, you know, men are getting too feminine and they're getting too sensitive and they're getting too feely. And here's a two week training where we're going to go to the outback and, you know, shoot a bunch of kangaroos and barbecue them and, you know, rip our shirts off and, you know, and, and be manly and be primal and like have a primal brotherhood. And again, I don't want to throw them under the bus. I'm making a little bit of fun, but it seems that I've noticed that there's just a lot of like, you're too femi now. We need to reconnect you with your primal masculinity. And I always just find that messaging and that approach to feel, for me, kind of icky and judgmental of like, well, I am, I don't know that I even want to define myself on that spectrum of how masculine or feminine are you. I mean, if anything, I kind of feel like at this point, known, I, I'm, I came up with a phrase with my therapist where I feel like I'm energetically androgynous. And he was like, that's really interesting. Tell me more what you mean about that. It just kind of came out of my mouth in the middle of a session. I said, I, I don't think that I identify again with polarity of being, you know, th this prototypical, whatever it is, how people define masculinity of, like we said, you know, you're assertive and aggressive and you take charge and you, you kill things and I don't even, whatever that is. And then the other polarity, which is like, but you're so nurturing and you're so feely and you're so sensitive. And if anything, I feel like I'm in all of it and I'm just in this 
androgynous energetic space where I don't even necessarily want to define it. But kind of going back to the beginning of this podcast when we were talking about people wanting to pull you to a side, it's sort of like, well, well we don't know what you are. Like, are, And it's like, I, well, I don't need to define it. I feel like I have prototypical masculine and feminine energies, all of them inside of me. So I don't want to feel like I'm, I don't know. I guess some of this marketing just feels like it's tapping like a not enoughness button of like, Jason, you don't feel man enough. Come do this workshop. And it's like, what does that even mean? Man enough. Yeah. It's all tapping into our insecurities and fears. And there is no enoughness. A thing that I've been trying to do more and more of is when I say the word, but I replace it with and to allow for all of it. Right. It's not like, I am masculine, but I also have these things. It's I am masculine and I am feely and sensitive and, and, and instead of but, but, but. Because the but is speaking to a pitting against. A but is speaking to like opposing forces, but a but is speaking to the polarity or the binary. It's, but that doesn't exist, right? It's and, it's not but. Yeah, no, I love that. No, and I think the big question I have left as we approach the finish line of this episode is, Again, looking kind of at the world and, and taking this this big scope of a worldview, how would you encourage and how do you encourage on, on a mass level for humanity to have more empathy toward one another? I mean, I think one of the big things right now is, as we've been talking throughout this episode, is the polarity and the divisiveness and the anger and the vitriol. And it seems right now that empathy and understanding and, and loving communication would serve humanity. And I'm curious, you know, wh- what do you think is in, in the way of that? And if you could just kind of wave a magic wand, <laughs> which I'm sure you do have a magic wand somewhere in that cool looking office. If you could just, you know, have the septuplet of wands flowing at all times like an ancient deity, how would you implore people to create more empathy and, and be actionable about empathy in their lives? I mean, I think uh, it goes back to what I said before. It starts from within, it, you know, thinking about, I recently led a workshop at uh, LCAD, Laguna College of Art and Design. And a lot of the feedback was, you know, overwhelmingly wonderful. And one of the main takeaways was I didn't know I could have empathy for myself, which was like mind blowing, also, also immensely sad, right? So it has to start from within. It has to, you have to be curious and explore and journey enough to figure out what that means for you. And it's, different for each of us. It means a lot of figuring out our boundaries. It means a lot of like figuring out what fills our hearts and what makes us excited and happy. It's figuring out what our passions are. And those are lifelong journeys, but it's building that practice and building that, that those muscles of reflection and curiosity in our feelings and uh, in our everyday. And then we take it outward and outward looks like a whole lot of stumbling and a lot of getting used to the uncomfortable spaces. And, you know, you mentioned at one point, I don't know if this is off air or on air, but talking about anti-vax and vax and stuff. And and these are like polar, you know, very charged conversations. How do we get to a place where we can show up in empathy for those conversations? How can we provide more context? How can we consider what that person has or hasn't gone through? How do we just be more curious. Ask questions, not assume. Don't show up with armor. Don't show up with prejudgment. Allow for things to be as they are and be as present as possible, I think is the key. That's a beautiful spell you just cast with those wands. <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> for you, dear listener, if you want to dig into 
even more of Known's work in the world, you can check out all of his links at our website in the show notes and the transcript for this episode. It's at wellevator.com. Our website is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section. It will take you directly to the show notes where you can find the link to You, Me, Empathy, Known's podcast, the Feely Human Collective, all of the great workshops that he runs, and the incredibly beautiful pins, which I also need to obtain a few of because I have a denim jacket that is covered with pins. Like it's literally just, I feel kind of like pseudo Iron Man that if someone were to fire at me, it would just deflect any any armament or bullets. Probably not. I'm going to put that to the test. Not going to put that. But the swag is mighty. The workshops are mighty. The podcast is beautiful, as are you known. And uh, if anything else, tune into his podcast to hear the amazing theme song he wrote because- I've been listening and went, this is a great theme song. Did you, is that you? Is that your voice? And did you write it? I did not write it. I basically, uh, my dear friend, David Grabowski is a musician and, and composer. And I said, I want this vibe. And he, he composed it and he sang and it's, it's perfect. I love it. It's masterful and beautiful and sweet. And, and again, feels like you. So if you, dear <laughs> listener or dear watcher, uh, loved what you felt from Known, please dig into all of his wonderful offerings and beautiful, uplifting, creative resources. And with that, we appreciate you, brother. Thanks for being with us on This Might Get Uncomfortable today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.